everyone, welcome back to History Written by the Losers. I'm Annika. And I'm Sudha. So it's November and it's Thanksgiving and it's also National Native American Heritage Month. And when we think about that, usually we're thinking about the Native Americans in North America. But for this episode, we thought for a change, we would talk about Native cultures in South America, namely the Aztecs and the Incas. So let's start with the Aztecs. The Aztecs were called the Mexica people, and they originally were founded around a central valley in Mexico, the city of Tenochtitlan. And in modern day context, a lot of us, what we know of the Aztecs is that they were fearsome or bloodthirsty or gruesome people. A lot of us think about the human sacrifices that we've heard about, but we don't know that much about the actual culture. And that's because most of what we know about the Aztecs is based on what the Spaniards told us, who began their conquest of the Aztecs 500 years ago in 1519. So the Europeans painted a really bleak picture of the Aztec life before the Christians arrived, and a lot of scholars attribute this to maybe remorse or guilt about what they had done. And in the 1970s, archaeologists also found more Aztec artifacts, and these helped paint the Mexica people in a barbaric and violent light as well. So what do we really know about the Aztecs? It is said that when the Spaniards arrived in the early 16th century, the Aztecs were ruling over 370 small city-states, and all of these city-states were paying tribute in goods to Tenochtitlan, which is the capital of the Aztec Empire. And as for the fierce and bloodthirsty aspect of the culture, it was true that the culture was based on war, but it was also based on agriculture. The Aztec religion believed in a pantheon of gods, including most importantly their god of war and their god of rain. As the Aztecs expanded, they sustained their empire through military conquest and through tributes. So it did require quite a bit of ferocity, but the society was very complex. Yes, it was socially divided between the nobility and the populace. The nobles included the rulers, the priests, and the military, all of whom had multiple privileges in society and did not have to pay taxes. The poorer people had to work hard as painters, poets, sculptors, peasants, doctors, or architects, and they attended schools to learn their trades. They received military training, but they also learned about religion, music, and their language. We know this because they left codices with pictograms and texts that told their history in their language, the Nahuatl. When the Spaniards came, the capital city had approximately 200,000 people. It was one of the world's largest cities in the 16th century. They were one of the world's greatest civilizations at that time. But of course, what many of us know now of the Aztecs was their history of human sacrifices. So there is this legend that only the Aztecs used human sacrifices, but a lot of historians attempt to highlight that this culture existed in many ancient cultures. In the Aztecs' case, human sacrifices were meant to please the sun god so that they could continue to have light, warmth, and life. They believed that without human sacrifices, the sun would stop and everything was going to die, so it had to be fed so that they could continue with their lives. But not all of their rituals demanded human sacrifices, and 
as mentioned, many, many ancient cultures had this history. So you're not getting a holistic picture if you just paint the Aztecs with this one tradition of theirs. That's right. So the Aztecs were a thriving culture, right? And they were doing well. They had these multiple city-states, they had a tribute system, they had a language, they had a culture, they had a religion. But as we've hinted at, all of that was about to end, and that came with the arrival of the Spaniards. Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés completed the invasion of Mexico's most powerful empire. Most of what we know about the Aztecs comes from the glorified tales that were told by the few hundred Spaniards who landed near Veracruz on the Gulf of Mexico. So he landed near Veracruz on April 22, 1519. He had only a few hundred troops. And shortly before that, he had fought against indigenous Maya people in the southeast. And actually that war had resulted in a truce. The Maya people presented slaves to Cortes, uh, including a woman named Malintzin, a Nahua woman who could speak the Aztec language. In addition, there was also someone named Geronimo de Aguilar, who was a Franciscan friar who could also speak some of these Aztec and Yucatec Mayan languages. So at the time, Diego Velasquez, who was the governor of Cuba, had actually already tried to stop Cortes's expedition. He had wanted to conquer the Western kingdoms for himself so he could earn that glory, and he had the approval from the Spanish crown. So Velasquez had ordered Cortes to only explore and trade on the mainland, but Cortes continued on, and he actually scuttled the, his ships once he docked them so that none of the people on his ships that were loyal to Velasquez could leave. So now that Cortes was on the mainland, he, with his translators, Malinzen and Aguilar, quickly went to work with the local Totonac people who were happy to rebel against the Aztec tax collectors in the area. Because as we mentioned, the Aztecs had a vast empire which depended on that tribute system, and so obviously not everyone was happy with that. So the Totonac informed him about the Laxcalans, who were also enemies of the Aztecs, who would serve as potential allies. Some of the Totonac joined the Spanish as scouts, leading the otherwise clueless Spanish troops through the unknown geopolitical landscape of early 16th century Mexico. So Cortes, during this whole time, was being coached and was being almost swaddled by these native peoples. And without them, he would not have been able to do what he did. So he essentially exploited the divisions in the society that he found to his advantage. The Lax Collins weren't initially convinced by Cortes to join him. In 1519, they actually fought against the Spanish for about 20 days, but eventually they came to a truce in the interest of overcoming their Aztec enemies together. But modern historians note that the indigenous people in the Americas at this time had a very different understanding of war than what the Spaniards did. Uh, despite the portrayal of the Aztecs as, you know, bloody conquerors, most of their battles were very low casualty when compared to European wars with thousands or tens of thousands of people who died. So the Mesoamerican empires were mostly about indirect power control and they would tax, but they would leave their subjects to their own devices, which was very different from what the Spaniards were attempting to do. 
So in helping the Spaniards, uh, at least the Laxcalans did not see that as something that would end up decimating their culture. They thought, oh, here's another force which can help them achieve their own goals. And um, they did not think of it as a force that would eventually seek total domination over the region. The Laxcalan forces added tens of thousands of warriors to the roughly 500 Spaniards at this time. And their first initial battle that they did together was against Cholula, which was an Aztec-controlled city-state, and they burned and razed the city and massacred thousands of people together. Slowly, Cortes and the Laxcalans made their way to the Aztec capital, which is the site of modern-day Mexico City. Some sources claim that the Aztec leader, Moctezuma II, was ineffective at dealing with the situation. He invited the Spanish in as part of a peace offering, although there is a lot of debate as to why the Aztecs would welcome Cortes and the Spanish. But he did invite them, and the Europeans remained there for about eight months, and during this time, a lot of things go wrong. Cortes actually eventually ends up kidnapping Moctezuma II and keeps him in his own quarters until 1520. So a lot of sources consider him to be a Spanish puppet at this point. Others believe that he was trying to control the situation, but it is clear that the Spanish definitely had a lot of control in this time. Meanwhile, Velasquez was still trying to get Cortes out of there, and Cortes eventually left to fight a force that was sent by Velasquez from Cuba to stop him. By the time they returned to the capital, the situation was even worse than before. So, there's a lot of variation in the record here, but... What we believe to have happened is that Aztec leaders were starting to rebel against the Spanish control of their capital because obviously they have massacred many Aztec nobles and they have taken over their government. So there's a lot of rebellion from different city-states. When Cortes returns, he sees this and he finally does the deed that he arrived eight months earlier to do, which was to kill Moctezuma II. The capital city was in turmoil and the Spanish and the Laxcalans had to retreat as the whole city rose against them. Hundreds were killed in their escape through the narrow causeways through Lake Texcoco. But the force that Velasquez had sent a little earlier that Cortes had gone to fight was now doing its true damage, not because of their warriors, but because of what their warriors had brought. Smallpox began to tear through the region, and it claimed the life of Moctezuma II's successor as well. So, after retreating, the Spanish and the Laxcalans slowly began to make their attempt to control Tenochtitlan again. They started allying or conquering various Aztec-controlled cities again, and they took cannons and masts and riggings from boats, and they created new ships. So after forming these alliances with all of these Aztec cities, by August 13th of 1521, the Laxcalans and the Spanish and their allies succeeded in toppling Tenochtitlan and the neighboring city. And while a lot of history texts say that that the fall of the capital city was the end of the Mesoamerican invasion, in reality, the Spanish still had a lot of struggles in America in order to achieve domination. It took them decades to beat the Chichimecs around the Zacatecas region, and they did not conquer some of the Mayan city-states until the end of the 17th century. So between the mid-16th and 17th century, 
the entire region was in a lot of flux. So we've talked about the conquest of the Aztecs, but a lot of historians now actually don't use those terms and instead call it the Spanish invasion because millions of people today still speak Nahuatl, the language of the Mexica, and the term conquest of the Aztecs implies finality. It implies that these people are gone, whereas these native peoples still continue to live in these areas and continue on the culture of the Aztecs in some form. So in order to recognize their resilience, we no longer think of it as the conquest of the Aztecs, but rather just one more invasion on their culture, which they survived. The story that many, of, many people have been told in the past was that the Spanish had just arrived to Mexico and easily conquered, you know, the submissive native peoples there. Not even the submissive native peoples, but they were, they, they on one hand aggrandized the culture as this fierce and terrible human sacrifice making people who were then converted to Christianity and, you know, made civilized. And so that narrative is all wrong. But they also, they also aggrandized their own story and they aggrandized how like, powerful they were in order to do that. Whereas they relied a lot on the native people there and they relied on, you know, things beyond their control like disease and... Um, Political differences amongst the native peoples, they exploited that. So rather than being this grand conquering army, they were actually more of a political organization that that used the differences amongst the native people against them. And a lot of it relied on just being in the right place and having, you know, some amount of luck. Right, serendipity rather than purpose. Well, so there is a rich and multifaceted Aztec history that we don't really know much about and also because we don't have a lot of written history before the Spaniards arrived. But there was another culture in the area in the Andes region that appeared during the 12th century AD and which gradually built a massive kingdom through their military strength and their emperors that we do know some facts about, and that is the Incas. So what we do know about the Incas is that they were very powerful. They had extensive road systems. They had, similar to the Aztecs, a lot of land that had been conquered. And their religion also centered on a pantheon of gods, a creator god, a rain god. There are impressive shrines that were built throughout the kingdom, including a very famous massive sun temple in Cusco that measured more than 1,200 feet in circumference. Their priests were very powerful and they used divination to diagnose illness, solve crimes and predict the outcome of warfare. In many cases, this required animal sacrifice. And as a lot of us know, the Incas are famous for now what we've discovered as Machu Picchu, which is the remains of one of their sites. But similar to the Aztecs, the Incas' history has also been marked by their decline and their fall. And that also came at the hands of the Spaniards. But there is a much deeper story than what many of us know. So the fall of the Incas has been attributed to Francisco Pizarro, who has gone down in history as the man who conquered the Incas. 
he led a small company of mercenaries and adventurers and he came from a very small town in Spain and he managed to demolish one of the most sophisticated empires the world has ever seen. So clearly, there is a lot more to this than meets the eye. So the arrival of the Spanish explorers in the region had already triggered the collapse of the Incas and that's important to note because they carried diseases like smallpox and that had already wiped out a huge chunk of the population. In fact, that killed Huayna Capac, who was one of the emperors of the Incas, and also killed his successor, which sparked a huge civil war amongst the Incan Empire, where the emperors tried to battle for power until Atahualpa eventually won. One of the things that gave the Spanish conquistadors such an advantage was the use of the horse. The horse was fundamental to farming success in Eurasian societies. The only non-Eurasian domesticated animal species in the world was the llama, native by chance to South America. The Incas relied on llamas for meat, wool, and fertilizer, but the llama was not a load-bearing animal. And unlike horses, llamas could never be ridden for war. The Spanish had extensive knowledge of horsemanship, and they had a lot of skills with cavalry. So. To people like the Inca who had never seen humans ride animals before, not only was it frightening to see such a large collection of troops on horses coming at them, but it was also frightening just in fact to see the animals themselves. And that advantage that the Spanish had really played a major role in the fall of the Incas. But Pizarro's men only brought 37 horses to Peru. So that was really not where the shock value was for their advantage. They had something that the Americans did not. They had steel. For thousands of years throughout Eurasia, metalworking technology had evolved and discoveries like gunpowder had also migrated from China. Political competition in Europe had fueled a medieval arms race, so Pizarro's conquistadors were armed with the latest and greatest in weapons technology at the time, guns and swords. The Incas, meanwhile, had never used iron. They did not know what gunpowder was. Their geography had not given them these resources, and they hadn't received technologies from any other societies because they were pretty much isolated from the rest of the Native American cultures. Other than guns and swords, the Spanish had one more trick up their sleeve that the Incas did not, and that was their ability to write. And this played a major role, as we will see. The Incas did have a very extensive way of counting tributes from their city-states, but they did not have a written language system as we know it now, and so that is eventually one of the factors that led to their demise. So on the eve of his attack on the Incas, Pizarro and his men were attempting to discuss how to tackle them, and it was almost impossible. But as we mentioned, writing played a major role in their success, and that was because they had accounts of past experience. Because only 12 years before, Hernan Cortez and his men had faced similar odds against the Aztecs. Cortez, as we mentioned, managed to conquer the land for Spain. So... When they did that, Cortes sent his soldiers back and sent written accounts back to the general public in Europe where it was widely published and these became essentially lessons for Pizarro and his men. By contrast, the Inca emperor Atahualpa had never heard of Cortes or even of his own neighbors, the Aztecs. Thanks to the geography of the Americas, it was practically impossible for any ideas, technologies or news to spread from the north to the south. 
So while the Mayan civilization of Central America had a form of written communication, it had never gotten as far as Peru. So the Inca were truly isolated. Pizarro had lured Atahualpa to a meeting for a supposed dinner in his honor, and then he decided to kidnap the emperor, and this was in November of 1532. Atahualpa was ex executed the following summer, and although the Spanish were far outnumbered, they easily sacked Cusco in late 1533 because of their superior weaponry. 7,000 Inca died at Cajamarca. Over the course of a generation, the Spaniards killed tens of thousands more. But up to 95% of the native population of the entire Americas was wiped out after this conquest. Clearly, the battle could not account for this number. So the answer, of course, was smallpox and other diseases that were carried by the Europeans that the Incas had no prior immunity to. Yes. And so in this way, as Jared Diamond has put it, guns, germs, and steel are what led to the fall of the Incas and not necessarily just the Spaniards' superiority, which is the narrative that they had painted for a long time. And this is, of course, because the only written account of the Incas was composed by outsiders and by the winners of the war rather than the losers. But the Incas were an advanced society, just like the Aztecs. They had rich cultures, they had buildings, they had irrigation systems, they had agriculture systems, roads, tribute systems, they had very complex societies. Right. And painting them as, you know, savage natives or even just easily conquerable, uncivilized peoples, as we mentioned in our White Man's Burden episode, that narrative only detracts from our understanding of the history as it was. As with many native cultures, their history was passed down to successive generations by trained storytellers and oral histories, which were not as preserved as the written history from the Eurasians, which is probably one of the major reasons why Western civilization has been able to tell the narrative of the history of the world more effectively than the peoples that they conquered. So this Thanksgiving, let us be thankful for the fact that we still have some history which is told from the perspective of the Native American cultures in South America, even if it is incomplete, even if we are still finding out more about it through archaeologists and uh, excavations and an oral history tradition, at least we have a way to talk about history from the perspective of the losers. Thank you all for listening. Make sure that you subscribe and follow us on Instagram at History Written by the Losers and on Twitter and TikTok at History Losers. For our American listeners, we hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. We're all thankful for your support and that you take the time to listen. And we'll see you next month for another episode of History Written by the, the Losers. Losers.